0: The question I want to explore today is this one. How is God glorified? Because it seems to me that the way you answer that question will, or at least it should, affect what you do. I mean, if you believe that God is glorified through acts of charity and compassion, then you're going to be involved in acts of charity and compassion, or at least you should. If you believe that God is glorified through the moral reform of society, you may become involved in an organization to abolish slavery or to um, prevent cruelty to animals or to um, work against sex trafficking and all those evil things. Great works of art and music can glorify God. You may know that that Bach at the end of each composition wrote solely Deo Gloria in Latin, only to the glory of God. Our buildings can glorify God. And so if you believe that buildings glorify God, you're going to use the kind of skill that Moses talked about in Exodus to to, to work skillfully with the gift of skill. Did you catch that? Kind of an interesting phrase, to work skillfully with the spirit of skill to make a beautiful place to work. Or if you believe that God is glorified through evangelism, you're going to be sharing the gospel. Or building community, or serving others like we're trying to with Littlewood Elementary next door, or or glorifying God in your family life. There's all kinds of areas in which to glorify God but in each of these cases and in others what glorifies God is not the thing itself but the response of people. It's possible to listen to Bach and think that's pretty music and not glorify God. You can see a beautiful church building and say gosh that's interesting architecture and not glorify God. You can eat food given to you when you're hungry and not glorify God. And in each of these things, the action itself is not what glorifies God, but the response of the people who because they want to glorify God become involved in the activity. And of course, often those who are affected by these things respond by glorifying God. God's glory comes from his people. God's glorified his people as they glorify him. Well, in our gospel passage this morning, I read just a few verses from a very lengthy prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus, in which Jesus prays for three different groups of people. First, he prays for himself. That's verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 17. For example, in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He then prays for the apostles in verses 6 through 10. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I've given them the words you gave to me, they've received them. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And then in verse 20, you and I are included in this prayer, if you're a follower of Jesus, because Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's a lengthy passage and a beautiful passage, and it's easy to get lost in the majesty and the rhythm and the poetry of this prayer, but there are profound truths being said by Jesus here. Jesus is looking forward to the crucifixion, forward to the resurrection, forward to the ascension, and all the way to being present with his Father. Last Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension. It's always on Thursday, so it's called Ascension Thursday. Today is the first Sunday after the Ascension, Ascension Sunday. Two days on the church calendar set aside to think about this time when Jesus rose into heaven, when Jesus passed into eternity, when he left this physical universe and passed into the presence of God. And so we celebrate that today with some of our music. We have a proper preface for the Ascension that we'll be using See how I slipped that in, Father Alex? I forgot to tell you, Nicky and I made that decision earlier, but I wanted to pass that word to you. Um, we had to do it early before you got here. So, we could do, Okay. Um, anyway, so, so we do special things to, to remember Jesus leaving. And as Jesus contemplates leaving the disciples, he, he constantly hits on the theme of sending the disciples. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world one of the central truths of the gospel is that when you're touched by Jesus, you're sent on a mission. And what mission is it? Jesus says in verse 18, the same mission that Jesus had. In Luke's gospel, Jesus describes his mission in these words. He says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And this is what the world finds offensive about Christianity. I mean, some people get really angry about Christianity, but I don't think that's most people, okay? Um, Most people say, well, you know, Christianity is okay, I guess. I mean, um, it seems like Christians have done a lot of nice things. When you go to big cities, you see all kinds of hospitals, and a lot of them have Christian names attached to them, St. Jude's and Baptist Hospital and Presbyterian General. And and so I guess Christians have done a lot of good things. And Jesus seems like a nice guy, you know, and he's going around talking about love and peace, and those are kind of nice things. And, you know, Mother Teresa, I'm a big fan of Mother Teresa, you know. And, And so I guess Christianity is okay, but the part I hate, people say, is this stuff about converting people, about people needing to get saved. All this talk you Christians say about lost people who, who need to be saved. And, and, and why do you want to convert people? I mean, why do you want to convert people to following your religious views? The way I see it, people say, religion should be a private matter between every person and his or her God. And you shouldn't go around trying to convert people to your religious views because religion should be a private matter just between an individual and whoever they, whoever they worship. What's funny is when they say that, they're actually trying to convert me to their religious views. They're saying, these are the religious views you should have, that religion is a private matter between each individual and God. Um, but enough, but anyway, I want you to share some thoughts on this theme of mission, of being sent. Jesus tells us in this, this passage several interesting and profound things, and one thing he tells us is that the result of being sent on mission is joy. That's in verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, Jesus says to his father. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, the apostles, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Our joy comes from two sources. First, we're joyful because we realize what God has done for us. We realize the truth of the gospel. We put ourselves in God's place, and so God put himself in our place. We wanted to substitute ourselves for God, and God substituted himself for us in Jesus because Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And when we realize that, we should be filled with joy at the grace of God. But it's even more profound than that. One of the most profound passages of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 12. The setting is that the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are coming up with a plan, so to speak, to to redeem the entire universe, but especially all human beings. And in that discussion, here's what the writer says about Jesus. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus realizes it's going to be his own suffering and his own death and his own humiliating shame which brings that redemption, he's filled with joy. And Jesus says here, but now, Jesus says to his father, I'm coming to you and at these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Have you noticed that there's a lack of joy in the world? And I think a lack of just general joy is linked to a lack of mission, of being sent. When you think about human beings, it seems to me we're hardwired for adventure. Not that all of us live particularly adventurous lives, okay. But we're excited and thrilled by adventure. Reading about adventure, watching a movie about an adventure, excites us and thrills us. I read an article yesterday about uh, an event, right, uh, about a Pan Am Clipper. These were big seaplanes. Still some of the biggest planes ever built in the, in the 1930s. And Pan Am would, would send these planes all, all around. And it was a story of one of these Clippers who left uh, Pearl Harbor on the morning of December 7th, 1941. And they get the news Pearl Harbor's been attacked. What are they going to do? They make their way as quick as they can to New Zealand. They go to a public library. They get all the books they can with atlases and maps and charts, and they figure out how to get back home the other way. And they fly to Australia. They fly across Australia. They're terrified to do that because this is a seaplane that doesn't have any landing gear. There's no way to land if they run into problems. They've got to find 100-octane fuel to get back home. They can't find that. They got to figure out how to work with junky old 90 octane fuel. They took all the insignia off the plane so the Japanese wouldn't shoot them down. And who do they run into but Dutch fighter planes just about get shot down. They have all these adventures. They had to get to Africa. Then they had to get to Brazil. And then they had to go all the way up to New York so they can get back to their homes. I told you the whole story, but it's, it's, it's all this adventure. And I was just enraptured because every paragraph there was some new crisis that was hitting them. But the biggest adventures are all, of all, and you know this, from books, from movies, from the great stories, is adventures that save people, that save communities, or that even save the whole world. Think about how many books and movies there are about this. And when you identify with the characters, and you've had this experience in the moment when everybody is saved, or the town is saved from the volcano or whatever, there's a happiness and you feel a thrill because the greatest thrill is to save somebody, to save a community, to save a planet. Little kids know this before they become cynical like us. But you ask a little kid, seven or eight, what do you wanna be when when you grow up? They never say, Well, I'll probably get a job in an office and I'll have a cubicle and I'll sit in front of a computer. And at the start of the day, there'll be a pile of paper over here, and at the end of the day, there'll be a pile of paper over there. Then I'm going to go home. They never say that. They want to have adventure and they want to serve people. I want to be a nurse and I want to help sick people. I want to be a firefighter and rescue people. I want to do this, I want to do that. I want to have big adventures because there's a joy in an adventure. And Jesus is inviting us to the biggest adventure there is. Redeeming the entire universe, person by person by person. Restoring the entire universe to the way Jesus designed, God designed it to be. Amen. There's a lack of joy in the world because so many of us don't have a higher cause to serve. Because many of us have bought into what the world tells us, that nothing is more important to us than our own happiness and our own self-fulfillment. If there's no higher cause than my happiness, that means there's nothing in my life worth denying my happiness to achieve. There's nothing to live for, nothing to die for, but the next meal, the next lover, the next big trip, the next big promotion, and none of that ever fills up this desire to serve a higher cause. Living for yourself means you lose joy. You're just a big happiness magnet that never attracts enough happiness. But when you find Jesus, you find yourself. When you lose yourself to Jesus, you find yourself. That's the great paradox that Jesus talks about in in his parables. When you you give up your life, you find it. When you give your life to Jesus, you find your life. And when you identify with Jesus, there's a joy that's set before you that you can endure the cross you're called to bear and despise the shame you're gonna carry for the name of Christ because it's all worthwhile in the end. Because there's a joy that comes from serving a higher cause, the biggest adventure there is. Second, the power for mission, the power for being sent comes from an encounter with God. If you read the scripture carefully, God doesn't bless people without sending them out. Think about Abraham, for example. God meets Abraham and says, I will bless you and make you great. Now, isn't that wonderful? That's what people want from religion, right? I want to meet God, then God's going to say, I will bless you and make you great. And then God says, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And then he says, now get out. For Abraham, that meant leaving his city, leaving his country. Not all of us are called to leave our city or our country, but the bigger thing that Abraham's called to leave is his security. He's called to leave his comfort zone. I don't like that call. I like my comfort zone. But God calls us to leave our security, to leave our comfort zone, and to be vulnerable. Following Jesus means to get out, leave the security be vulnerable. And finally, there's a requirement for being sent. Jesus says here, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And how did the Father send Jesus? Well, in Luke's word, Jesus was mighty in word and deed. Word and deed. I'm going to use a phrase here that Anglicans don't like. Personal holiness. Jesus says something very interesting in verses 17, 18, and 19. It's almost like, at first glance, it looks like Jesus loses his train of thought and then gets back at it. In verse uh, uh, 17, Jesus says, "Up To the apostles and to us, sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify literally means to set apart, not to set apart like in a museum somewhere, but to set apart for holiness, to be made holy. Jesus says, sanctify them, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified, made holy in truth. At first glance, it looks like make them holy, send them out. Oh yeah, and then make them holy. But they all go together. To be sent out is part of being made holy. Holy. Think of Isaiah. Isaiah one day, well it's a Sabbath day, he decides to go to the temple to worship, and then he is shocked and traumatized because the last person, maybe like some of you, the last person he expects to show up at a worship service shows up, and that's God. And he catches a vision of God seated on his throne, his train filling the temple And what's Isaiah's response? Immediately, his insecurities come out. Immediately, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a bunch of people with unclean lips. And then the angel comes, takes a coal off the altar, and I'm not quite sure how to articulate this. I only saw this yesterday, but the altar is the place where sacrifice is made to atone for sin, and he takes the the coal off the altar, and the angel comes right at Isaiah, touches his lips, and the burning holiness of God cleanses his sins. He's forgiven. And God says, I need someone to carry a message, and I need someone to carry a message to people who are going to reject it. They're not going to listen to it. They're not going to obey it. They're going to deny it and reject it. But there's a remnant There are a few people who are going to keep this message alive. You need to write this down because the remnant, their grandkids are going to need what you write down or what somebody writes down. I need to send somebody. And what does Isaiah say? He says, here I am. Here am I. Send me. It's a response to that holiness of being forgiven that changes Isaiah's life forever. And that's the kind of holiness that we're called to you know, we're not called to live holy lives just for God, or just for ourselves, but for the whole world. Jesus says, go into the world and be sanctified, be holy. You know, I guess some people, well, oftentimes hear people say, you know, I wish my neighbor or my family member or something would, would come to church and hear a good sermon, and then, and then they'd start following Christ. Well, I guess some people do that. Okay. But most people really aren't interested in sermons. There, I said it. I said it, Father Chris. Most people aren't interested in sermons. Okay. Most people aren't interested in great works of art. Surely somebody has seen a painting of Jesus that just struck them and captured their attention and they went home and started reading about Jesus. But most people aren't all that interested in great buildings or, or reading a book. Here, read this book and it'll convince you to follow Christ. Maybe it works for some people, but most not. Um, or maybe some people are reached through social outreach and, and evangelistic programs and those kind of things but most people aren't interested in those things they're interested in life and they're interested in living and if you can't show, show I follow Jesus and this makes my life different all the nice sermons and fancy buildings and evangelistic programs and great music and great works of art are not going to impress anybody Amen. that's why holiness is built into being sent, into being sent, because you're made for mission. And that's why so many people are joyless and empty of ambition, because they have no higher cause to be called to, but you've been made for a huge mission, the biggest adventure anybody's ever dreamed of. Step into it, in Jesus' name. Amen.